Wildwood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy and the third chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can turn in that to page 166 in the back, and you will be at 2 Timothy chapter 3. What I want to do as we begin today, look at two verses that, that really are an expression of the passion of my heart, about the things that I care deeply about, that, that motivate me, that gives me a strong enthusiasm. And those two verses are found in chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17, where it says very simply that all Scripture is inspired by God. All of the book that you hold in your hand is inspired by God. Literally, God breathed. It's the words that came directly out of the mouth of God. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for a number of things. It's useful for, first of all, teaching. The Bible teaches us what is true, and we need to know what is true in our world today. It is inspired and profitable for teaching, but also for reproof. It will refute error. It will point out what is wrong. And again, we need to know about what is wrong in our culture today. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. The Word of God will straighten us out. When I am off the proper path, it will help return me to the proper path. It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It will, the Bible, teach us to do what is right. It will build your character and my character as we intersect with it. And then it says in verse 17, so that the man of God, the woman of God, the people of God may be, in my version it says, adequate. Now, technically the word adequate has a good meaning to it, but in our culture it has a weak connotation attached to it. I mean, who wants to just be adequate? What's your home like? Well, it's adequate. That's not really what the intention of the original was. So that the man of God might be fully competent, might be thoroughly equipped, might be prepared in every way, so that we are equipped for every good work. What does that mean, men and women? It means that it is an awesome privilege to own a copy of the Bible. Most of the followers of Jesus throughout the centuries have not had this opportunity that we have. And it is a profound privilege to have the opportunity to open up the Bible and gain these benefits that are listed here so that we can be equipped for every good work, every good thing that we should be doing as we live out our life. Now that's my heart passion. That's what gets me excited. Today we're going to launch a new study of a new book of the New Testament, which is the book of Philippians. And so you could turn with me to the left, several books, to the book of Philippians and chapter number one. You could turn to page 154 if you're using a Bible from underneath the chair, and it will get you to Philippians 1. Now, this is an, an intriguing and interesting book we have before us. But what is really interesting to me is that I think it's likely that we're more familiar with bits and pieces of Philippians than we are with the book overall. 
And part of the reason why is that Philippians is chock full of memorable phrases, chock full of scriptural sound bites that we've often heard or maybe we've even passed along to other people. Let's just look at a few of them. For example, in chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And then in verse 21 of chapter 1, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those are very common sound bites that we've often heard. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How about this one? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Another soundbite that we're familiar with comes in, in verse 14. Maybe this is one that you've shared with your children if you have it, have children. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. See, these are common things that we've heard, memorable phrases. Look at chapter 3 and uh, toward the end of verse 13. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on, verse 14, towards the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Very memorable phrases that we've heard. And, and then chapter 4 is really loaded. For example, uh, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And then verses 6 and 7, maybe these are verses that you have memorized about how we're to be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and supplication and so forth, and then the peace of God will guard our hearts. And then maybe even verse 8 is another one that you've memorized. Or, for example, we have verse 8 on the wall in our home. Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. How about another soundbite? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And then, verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. A lot of memorable phrases and scriptural sound bites that we are very familiar with if we've been around the church at all. But here's one of the concerns I have. I think there is a potential because we are so familiar with a lot of these phrases that we may miss the fullness of the message of Philippians. And we don't want to do that. Now, we have entitled our study of the book of Philippians this way, Spiritual Essentials for a Joyful Life. And what we're going to do this morning is simply introduce the book of Philippians to all of us. And today's plan has three portions to it. The first thing we're going to do is look at some key background. Background is very important when you're studying a book. You need to have the feel, the ambiance of what's going on. And then we're going to look at the special nature of the book of Philippians. This book is very unique in a lot of ways in the New Testament. And then we're going to end by looking at the opening greeting of the book in verses 1 and 2. So that's our plan. That's where we're going. We're going to look at some key background. We're going to look at the special nature of the book. And then we're going to look at the opening greeting. So here we go. Now, in order to look at the key background, we need to go to the book of background, which is the book of Acts. So turn several pages to the left, and I want you to come to Acts chapter 16. 
Acts chapter 16, and we're going to go back in time, space, history, in essence, and look at the beginning, the founding, the starting of the church of the Philippians. Now, what is happening is that Paul is launching off in Acts 16 on what is called his second missionary journey. This happened about 50 to 52 A.D., and um, we have a map for you, and I want to orient you a little bit because you'll get a better feel for things if you can see the map, which is what I initially forgot, which was my laser pointer. Um, I just want you to see up here that Israel is down here in this corner. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, this whole piece here is called Asia Minor. And over here you have Greece and you have Europe. So this is the Middle East over in here. And as the second missionary journey is starting, it's starting from Antioch of Syria, right up there north of Israel. And in particular, I want you to notice the last verse of chapter 15. It says that Paul and Silas were traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So they started out here in Antioch, and they went up through parts of Syria and into Cilicia right here, and that's where they were beginning to teach in the churches. And you notice in uh, verse 1 of chapter 16, it says, Paul came to Derby and to Lystra. So they, they started here, they went over here, and they came to Lystra and Derby. I know you can't all see these names, but that's what it's talking about right there. And while he is there, and this is something Pastor Mark talked about recently, a disciple was there named Timothy, who was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers who were there in Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted this man to go with him on the second missionary journey. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. And so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Now, this is one of the reasons why when you go through a section of the Bible like this, you should have a map out because you're going to see all these places being mentioned. And if you don't have a map, you don't even know what in the world's going on. But I want you to notice what it says in verse 6. It says, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So in other words, they started here in Antioch of Syria, they went up this way through Lystra and Derby, and then it says they were going through the Galatian and Phrygian regions here, and the Holy Spirit had forbid them to go over here into Asia, which is a province, a Roman province, and this is where Ephesus was, and it was in Asia where you have the, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. So in other words, Paul was wanting to hit the places he'd hit before. He traveled up through here, and he wanted to go over here to the province of Asia, and the Holy Spirit said, no, no, I don't want you to go there at all. And then notice what happens in verse 7. It says, after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. So they started out here, they traveled over here, they went up here, they wanted to come here, but the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't go there. So they came up here to Mysia, and then they wanted to go straight east into Bithynia, but for a second time, the Holy Spirit said, no, you can't go there. 
And you know, you're beginning to get an idea that the Spirit of God has a plan in all of this. He wanted to go to the province of Asia where he'd been before, and the Holy Spirit said no. He went on a little bit to the north and to the west, and he said, let's go straight east into Bithynia. The Holy Spirit said no. What's going on here? Well, notice it says at the end of verse 8 that they came down to Troas, and so they wanted to come to Asia. The Holy Spirit said no. They wanted to go east into Bithynia. The Holy Spirit said no. So they came to this seaside town called Troas, right on the edge here of the Aegean Sea. And I want you to see what happens there. After the Holy Spirit had said no to Paul and to two areas, verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So if you picture it, he's right here at Troas. Macedonia is this area across the Aegean Sea. This was part of Greece, part of, this is what's so significant about the church of the Philippians, part of Europe. You see, up to this point in time, the gospel message had just been centered around the Middle East. And now, after the Holy Spirit has said no to two different places, there's this vision of a man who's in Europe, a Macedonian, probably dressed in in unique clothing, and he's saying to Paul, will you come across the Aegean Sea? Come over here and help us. And so, what do they do? Well, in verse 10, he says, when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there. God's calling us to go over to Europe now, which eventually, of course, would lead to a wide spread of the gospel all the way into Rome. And so, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. So, in other words, they were here at Troas. They took a ship across here. Samothrace is a little island off the edge of Macedonia. They went to Neapolis, which is right here, but then they traveled very quickly to the city of Philippi, which is located right there. Now, I want you to see what was involved in Paul deciding as he traveled over to Macedonia. Why Philippi? Why did he stop there? Why did he stop in Philippi? Well, notice it says in verse 12, Philippi was a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And what's really interesting is if you go today, you can see the ancient city, some of the ruins of the ancient city of Philippi. And Philippi was named after a guy by the name of Philip of Macedon. And you go, big deal. Well, it is somewhat of a big deal because he had a famous son, Philip of Macedon did, by the name of Alexander. Perhaps you've heard of Alexander the Great. So the city of Philippi was named after Alexander the Great's father. And it was a very key area. It was a fertile area. It was surrounded by gold and silver mining. But that, I don't think, is the only reason why Paul said, I'm going to start in Philippi. There were two other reasons why I think it influenced that. One is that Philippi was on what was called the Ignatian Way. It was really, in its day, a super highway that had been built from Rome to the east. And Philippi was located right on the Ignatian Way. And when you go there, you can see ruins of what was in that day truly a super highway. A second reason why I think that he chose 
Paul, or rather Philippi, Paul did, was because of the Ganges River was right there. Um, for example, if you went outside the ancient wall, about half of a football field, you would come to the Ganges River. And you say, what's the significance of all of that? I don't really understand. Well, here's the idea behind it. The equivalent of that today would be to come to a city that was right on the interstate. And not only that, it had a major airport nearby. Because you see, in that day, travel up and down the river was very much like our travel from an airport. And then you had this major superhighway that went right by Philippi. And the idea in Paul's mind was, if I'm going to start sharing the gospel, what better place than a place where the gospel could go upriver and downriver, the gospel could go to the west and to the east on the Ignatian Way. And so he says, you know what? If I'm going to go into Macedonia, if I'm going to go into Europe, that's the place I want to start. And so he goes to Philippi. Now, what's really interesting about Philippi, and we learn about it from verse 12, is that it was a heavily Roman city, and there were very few Jews there. Uh, there was no synagogue there. And if you know the book of Acts, that was Paul's first order. He would go into a town, and he'd go to the synagogue because there were people there who had the Old Testament, and he could build on their knowledge of the Old Testament to bring them to the person of Christ. But there is no synagogue in Philippi. In fact, it took 10 men were required, Jewish men, to have a quorum for a synagogue, which they called a minyan. There weren't even 10 men who were Jews. This was a heavy Roman city. So I want you to see this is fascinating because this is how it all gets started in Europe, which is, of course, what ultimately led to us getting the gospel. Notice what happens. It says... On the Sabbath day, verse 13, we went outside the gate to a riverside, about half of a football field out there, where we were supposing, even though there wasn't a synagogue there, that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. I just want you to feel all of this, okay? Paul is wanting to go out. He's wanting to reach out with the gospel. The Holy Spirit says, no, not over here. No, not over there. And then there's this vision, come over here and help us. And then he shows up, and then he's looking for, who am I going to talk to? I'm going to go just down by the river and see if there's a, a place of prayer. And so they began talking to some women that were there. Verse 14, and there was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. First person he came upon was really an entrepreneur. A woman from Thyatira who sold purple fabrics. Now, what we need to know is a little bit of background here. There was, a, in Thyatira, a special purple dye. It was a dye that was fabulous. It was actually squeezed out of a shellfish drop by drop. It's very, very rich in color and very, very high quality and yet very expensive. And so we have this entrepreneur, this lady, Lydia, who was involved in a business where she would buy garments that had been dyed from her hometown with this very expensive, rich purple dye. So she had a thriving business. And we learn that she was also there in verse 14, a worshiper of God, which means she was a convert to Judaism. And so Paul begins to talk to her, and notice what happens 
She was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul as he laid out the gospel message of who Christ really was. And she chose to believe. And then notice what happens. She and her household, those who also had heard the message, who believed, were then baptized. And so you have the launching of the the Riverside Community Church in Philippi, the very first church in all of Europe. What an incredible experience this was. And then you'll notice in verse 15, uh, she goes on to say, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, will you come to my house and, and stay? And she prevailed on them to stay. And we know that she had to have some sort of a villa. She was very wealthy. But in order to take Paul and, and Silas and, and Timothy and Luke into her home, it had to be of some great size. That's how it all began. But then we get some more insight in verses 16 and 17. He says, It happened while we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl, having a spirit of divination, a, she was demon-possessed, met us. And this was a girl who was bringing her masters, those who owned her, much profit by fortune-telling. Somehow the demonic being would give insights into, 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 into events, and these guys were making a lot of money, a big killing off of this girl. Well, notice what happens. After, after a while, she was following after Paul and us. Luke is writing this, and she kept crying out, saying, These men are the bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, is that true or not? Yeah, that was true. They were the bondservants of the Most High God who were proclaiming the way of salvation. But there was a little problem with all of this, and that is one day Paul would be leaving. And what if people just thought, that girl has such incredible insights. Maybe with Paul gone in the future, we'll just follow after her. Whatever she says is what we're going to do. That was a potential problem. And I really, really enjoy verse 18. It says, she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. It's like, I'm getting tired of this. I'm getting sick of this. I'm thinking the ramifications of this, what this could mean after we go. And so he turns and he says to the spirit that was inside the girl, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. And, and, and the implication seems to be that we added to the new church, the Riverside Community Church, its second member, second group of people that came in, Lydia and the people in her household, and now we have this servant girl. But I want you to notice what happens. Verse 19, but when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they're going, wait a second now, you're taking out, I mean, this girl's bringing us in big bucks. You can't do that. You're, you're, you're robbing us, basically. So what do they do? They seize Paul and Silas, and they drag them into the marketplace before the authorities. That's where the authorities would gather. And when they brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men, these guys over here, are throwing our city into confusion. And then I like they threw this one in, being Jews. We don't have very many here, but this is what happens when you let Jews into town. And it's just going to throw our whole community into confusion, and it's going to cost us money. And notice he says, verse 21, they are proclaiming customs which it's not lawful for us to accept or to observe because we're Romans. <laughs> They're Jews. We're Romans. They're Jews. That's how the whole thing begins. 
Well, notice the crowd gets excited, and, and they rise up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes. That's showing complete frustration, and they proceeded to order Paul and Silas to be beaten with rods, just grabbing these sticks and, and basically bearing your body and just whacking on you. Beat them with rods. And verse 23 says, when they had struck them with many blows, this is how it all began in Europe, the outreach to Europe. They threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And having received such a command, the jailer threw them into the inner prison, which is the worst part, and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now I want you to stop reading for a moment and look up at me. Put yourself in their position. What would your reaction be right about now? Now I don't know what my reaction would tend to be. I'd be going, did I really understand that the Holy Spirit said no, you know, to the province of Asia and, and to Bithynia? Did I, really, did I really see a vision of a guy in Macedonia saying, come over here? Because this isn't exactly what I was bargaining for. You know, to get whacked with sticks and then thrown into prison, and here I am sitting in stocks. This is horrible. This is a tragic this is terrible. I don't know if God knew what he was. That's probably what I would have done. But I want you to notice the reaction of Paul and Silas. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. I would have been doing that, believe me. But they were also singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I'm sure not just the prisoners, but those who were involved in, in guarding were listening to them. What are they thinking? Who are these guys? They're so different from us. I mean, think about it. They come into this town. They get hassled. They get beaten with rods. They're thrown into prison. They're in the stocks. And they're thanking God. This is really strange. This is really Weird. But you know what was really going on here, men and women? Paul was living part of what he's going to write to the Philippians about. And we're going to see part of what's in this book comes out of real life experience, not just giving us this high and mighty stuff way up here. Paul's saying, No, I lived this. You can live this too. Well, this spiritual concert of praise ends up bringing the house down. Verse 26. Suddenly, there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. You know why? Because if you allowed prisoners to escape, you were going to be executed, and it wouldn't be in a very pleasant manner. And he's thinking, the jail is completely open. Everybody's run off. I don't want to die in agony. I'll just go ahead and fall on my own sword and get it over with in an easy manner. But notice what ends up happening. Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, don't harm yourself. We're all here. I know that all the doors are open and all the chains are off, but friend, we are all still here. 
And so the jailer called for lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out just to talk with them, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I heard you singing, you're different. And then some miraculous thing happens. What must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and you and all your household who believe. And so they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, the jailer did, and washed their wounds. I mean, they were very bloodied from the beating with the rods. And immediately the jailer was baptized, he and all his household who also believed. And so we added more people to the Riverside Community Church in Philippi. And then I want you to notice what goes on from there. He brings them into his house and he sets food before them and he rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. And then daylight came and the chief magistrates sent their policemen to the jail saying, ah, you know what, we beat them with rods, they've, they've hung around in the stocks all night, now we're going to let them go. Release those men. And the jailer reported those words to Paul, saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you, therefore you can just, you know, go in peace. And I love this. Verse 37, and Paul said to him, uh-uh, uh, whoa, 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 time out. A little time out right here. Calling time out because he says, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans. Wait a minute. They hadn't stopped to ask that question. They were Jews, but they never asked, are you Roman citizens? Because it was total, just like in our country, it's completely illegal to levy a punishment on someone without a fair trial. You do that and you're in hot water. He said, we are Romans and you've thrown us into prison and now you want to send us away secretly? No, I don't think so. He said, let the magistrates come themselves and they can just walk us out of here. So the policemen, verse 38, report these words to the chief magistrates. And I love this again. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Oh my goodness, we could be thrown out of office. We could receive the same kind of punishment they got because they were Romans and we violated the law. And so they come to Paul and to Silas and they appeal to them. And they kept begging them, verse 39, will you guys just go, please? I mean, we messed up here, but would you just kind of quietly go off? Just kind of leave town? And I, I, like, I get what they do here. It's like, Paul goes, yeah, well, we'll, we'll be leaving, but we're just going to talk to the people in the Riverside Community Church before we go. Any problems with that? So they entered into the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them, and then they departed. This is all part of the background, the feel of the book of Philippians. In fact, what's interesting, if you follow through the book of Acts, you'll know that in chapter 22, Paul gets arrested. And he gets moved around several different places in the book of Acts. And then, if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 28, I, see, I want you to see what happens towards the end of the book of Acts. As the book of Acts closes... Paul gets shipped to Rome in Acts 28, 16. It says he was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. Um, 
When you're under house arrest, you could rent an apartment, but you were still under arrest, so you had to have a soldier chained to you. And so for three eight-hour shifts, you had one guy with Paul for eight hours chained to him, then another guy for eight hours, then another guy for eight hours. That's the way he was held in house arrest in Rome. And then in verse 30, the last couple of verses of, of Acts, he stayed there two full years in his own rented quarters. And people could come and go and see him, but he was still chained, you see, to that guard because he was still under arrest, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Now, go back with me to the book of Philippians. So we see how the church got started, the Riverside Community Church in Philippi, and um, we see that Paul ends up being arrested and he ends up being Rome in prison, and we can see in, in Philippians that he's in prison when he writes this. He mentions his imprisonment in verse 7. He mentions his imprisonment in verse 13. He mentions his imprisonment in verse 14. He mentions his imprisonment in verse 17. So it's about 10 years later, about 62 AD, from when he first came to Philippi. Now, 10 years later, he is writing a letter. Many of you have heard about the prison epistles in the New Testament. They were letters written while Paul was in prisoner, he was under arrest. You have Ephesians, you have Colossians, you have Philippians, and you have Philemon, the prison epistles. Now that's just some key background, all right? Just want you to have a feel when you pick this book up and read it, what was happening. That leads us into the second thing we want to look at, which is the special nature of the book. This is a very special, unique book in the New Testament. It is the most personal of all of Paul's letters. It has a, a shepherding, friendship feel to the book. What is missing from Philippians is a strong stance that he has to take in some other letters on his apostolic authority. You don't see the, the tight theological reasoning, the in-depth arguments. It's not here in this book. Very personal, very much a friendship-style book. And I think there's two reasons why that's true. One is that I believe the Philippians had had a special impression on Paul. He just felt a special affinity for, them, for the Riverside Community Church. They were the first church of Europe. That was big time. And how it all started was so unique to Paul. But another reason why I think it's personal and there's a friendship feel, shepherding feel to the book is that these people had a special connection with Paul. He'd been a lot of places. He'd started a lot of churches, but the Philippians had a special place. Look at chapter 4 and verses 15 and 16. He says, You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, after I got out of the area, no church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving but you alone. Of all these churches I reached, you were the only ones who thought about my financial needs. And he says in verse 16, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. He just had a special connection with this church. 
Very, very special nature to the book. It's the most personal. And the other thing I really like about this book is it hits right where we live. Because the culture of Philippi was a lot like our own. In fact, when you read through the book, you can just catch, catch the smell, a strong whiff of something from the culture of their day, and that was pride and self-focus. There was a lot of pride, a lot of self-focus. People in that culture were interested in what interests me. I'm interested in my interest. I'm interested in my experience. I'm interested in my needs. That was their culture. It's a lot like ours today. And so he has to write to them. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Do nothing. Don't be like your culture. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's radical thinking. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then in verse 21, he talks about how there's a lot of people running around in the, in the religious community, and he says they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. That was the culture in which... Think about the people that you work with, that you live near. After their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And, and the idea seems to be that this kind of pride and self-focus will sap an individual's life. It will sap the life of a church. It will rob you from a sense of joy in how you live and relate to other people and how you serve them. It's very very real kind of a book. These believers were experiencing in their life suffering and difficulty, we know that. And there's a lot of us gathered here today right now who find ourselves in the midst of some suffering and some difficulty. And he writes to them in verse 29 of chapter 1, he says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. And then in, in chapter 3, in verse 10, he says, My desire is that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That I might experience some of what Christ went through. And, and we know that they were experiencing suffering and difficulty because why else would you need verse 14 of chapter 2? Do all things without grumbling Don't whine, don't complain about what you're going through. See, this is real life stuff. And, and part of his thrust is when you have that suffering and difficulty, it will foster anxiety. You'll become very anxious, and that's why he says in chapter 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. See, these people were very much like us in our culture. And part of what he says to the Philippians is, and I think he's saying to us, you need to reorder your thinking you need to adjust your perspective. Don't think like the people around you. In chapter 2, in verse 2, he says, Make my joy complete, being of the same mind. You need to think in a similar manner, folks. Intent on one purpose, united in spirit. Have this attitude, verse 5, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Your thinking should be more like that of Christ than like that of the culture. And then in chapter 3, in verse 15, he says, 
as many of us as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. This is the way that you ought to think. See, right thinking looks at circumstances differently. Looks at circumstances and difficulty as an opportunity, not as an obstacle. Was that a guy who was just talking theoretically? When difficulty came into his life? See, he was thinking that way. That's what led to him singing hymns of praise. Difficulty had come. He said, this is an opportunity, not an obstacle. Right thinking affects how we serve. We need to have right thinking about the gospel, right thinking about how we are to live our life. And one of the thrusts in this book is this. He's saying to the believers in Philippi and to us, focus, you need to have a, a central focus on the presence and power of the Savior as you live your life. Someone has calculated 104 verses in the book of Philippians. 51 of them mention the Lord Jesus by name. Paul's saying that's where your focus needs to be on the presence and the power of the Savior. And there is, of course, an undercurrent of joy in this. Some have called the book of Philippians the epistle of joy. But it's not a superficial kind of joy. Don't worry, be happy kind of joy. It's a joy that we can experience apart from the circumstances we're in. It's a joy that we can experience apart from the way people treat us. It's a deep joy that can be sparked in our life even when we're in dark places. I love what Sam Gordon has said about Philippians. He says, this is a delectably delicious piece of mail. It sparkles with practical truth. We have an adventure ahead, men and women. I want you to notice the outline that we gave to you on the book as it talks about spiritual essentials for a joyful life. And I'll just review through basically the thrust in the chapters as I see it. Chapter 1, a spiritual essential is essential perspective. The key idea is difficulty is common in the spiritual life. The key response is, Keep centered on your life with Christ. In chapter 2, he talks about an essential mindset that we are to have. The key idea is humility and serving is integral to the spiritual life. And the key response we are to have is to live distinctively as children of God. In chapter 3, he's going to talk about essential dependence that we are to have. And the key idea is reliance on the flesh submarines the spiritual life. And the key response we are to have is to press on to daily dependence on Jesus. And then in chapter 4, he's going to talk about essential living. The key idea is maintaining right choices is vital to the spiritual life. And then he's going to give us some key responses that we are to have as we work through all of that. So, we said we were going to give you some key background because I wanted you to feel the book of Philippians. We've talked a little bit about the special nature. We want to end now by talking about the opening greeting in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And what we have is the very common tri-opening to New Testament letters where it says this is from, and then this is the people to whom, and then there is a greeting given. So notice verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy... Bond servants of Christ Jesus. Literally, it's slaves of Christ Jesus. 
Isn't it interesting how he does not lead off with them? He doesn't say, you know, this is the guy, remember, the guy with the sensational, no one can top this testimony. Uh, I'm writing to you now. He doesn't say that. He says, a slave, you know, a slave is someone who is bought and owned by the master. And Paul says, Timothy and I were slaves. Jesus is the first cause of all that happens. Nothing happens except it comes through his fingers. He says, I am a slave, and Timothy is a slave. A slave is subject to the master. He will do things according to the agenda of the master. Whatever the master wants, he does. Whatever the master asks, he does. Whatever the master calls you to, he does. By the way, he's not the only one who is a slave. We are too. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.20, and he says, you are not your own for those who are, have come to know Christ. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So these servants of Christ Jesus are writing, and it's to the saints of Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Now, when we see saints, it doesn't mean, well, you know, those guys at the Vatican got together and they decided to honor, you know, a, a, a saint in New Testament lingo was, was not some superstars. Let's look among all the followers of Jesus and we'll pick out the superstars and those are the... No, it isn't that way at all. The saints are a reference to those who've been set apart to Jesus, who God called into his forever family. And he's writing to the saints, the believers who are in Philippi. And then he says, including the overseers and deacons. By the way, this is the only time in any of Paul's letters he ever did that where he highlighted the leaders in this way. The overseers were the overseers, the elders, the leaders of the church. The deacons would be like the assistants to the elders, much like a lot of our staff here. And you think, why, why here does he mention them? And I think there's a couple of reasons why. One is we're going to learn from chapter 4, verse 18, that they had sent another financial gift to him. And so he, he wants to thank the whole church, including the leadership for it. But I think there's another reason why he mentions the leaders here and that is that there was friction in the church. In chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, I think even some of the leaders were involved in that. And it was one of these deals like, I'm writing to you now, to all the believers, and then, yeah, I also want you leaders to understand, I'm writing to you too. So you, you need to heed what is in this letter. And then he says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you, God's unmerited favor. See, to those who did not deserve anything, God gave to us everything, right? We deserve punishment, but through Christ we are pardoned and justified. He says, grace to you, and then peace. Peace is the tranquility that is a result of having been recipients of God's grace. Grace frees us from the fear of death and judgment, and then peace comes along and calms our spirit even when we walk in dark times. Hey, we got a great adventure ahead of us as we study the book of Philippians. Now, I want to close just before we sing with some life response today. Every time we come in contact with the Word, we need to be thinking about a life response. And my life response is basically this, to ask everybody here this question, what is your relationship with Jesus Christ today? Perhaps you are here today, and we think this is true of many of us, and you are, like I am, a slave of Christ Jesus. You have been bought and owned 
by the Savior. What ramifications should that have? Well, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 talks about that, where Paul says that we are to present our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And that we're not to be conformed to the world around us, shaped by the world, but we're to be transformed, we're to be different people than the people we work with and we live near by the renewing of our mind. And so if you are a follower of Jesus and you're a slave, you're bought and owned, that's what he wants out of you, for you to present your body to him as a living sacrifice. And then there's likely that there's others of us, though, who could be here today who don't have a personal relationship yet with Jesus Christ. And what does he want from you? Well, I think of those words from Acts 16, verses 30 and 31, when the jailer said, Paul, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be rescued, rescued from sin and judgment and from myself? And the answer Believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be rescued. You see, when we choose to believe in and to trust in and to rest in who Christ is, what he came here to do, to die for you and to be raised again from the dead and to offer you new life, that's the response, if you don't yet know him, that you are to have. To make that life decision to turn and trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the word of God that is inspired and profitable for us. We thank you that you've given us Bibles, that we have access to it. And we thank you, Father, for those of us who know you, for the opportunity that we have to honor you with our life. Oh, what a great privilege. And Father, though, I do want to just pray for those who may be here who don't know Christ personally, that they would realize that the response God wants from them is that they would turn to him, admit their own failures, believe in, trust in the Lord Jesus as the one who bled and died for them. And by doing that, they can be rescued. And they can come to know the one to whom to know is to receive life that is everlasting, not only for now, but for all eternity. We just thank you. We would pray that any who don't know you would trust in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.